Welcome to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill, and I'll be leading you on this adventure. We'll be getting into deep discussions about classic records, profiles on up-and-coming bands, and interviews with your favorite artists. You can check out new episodes every week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. My good friend, rock music scribe, fellow musician, and music aficionado Jay Bennett joins us for this episode of Classic Records. This time around, we're going to be talking about Guns N' Roses' debut LP, Appetite for Destruction. I remember picking this record up at Tower Records in Boston. At the time, I wasn't really into that style of music. I was totally blown away when I put the record on. That sort of brought me back into listening to heavy rock. Yeah, it was a really important record for me. And as time went on, we can all see that it was a very impactful record on hard rock music in general. Guns N' Roses was not the type of band that I was listening to at the time that Appetite for Destruction came around. You know, and it kind of coincided with me yeah. living in Boston the first time around and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, yeah, you know, that's fine because I actually, I, I kind of assumed that was the case with you, but I also know that you are, um, you know, have been expanding your horizons in all um, over the last few years. So um, I was pleased that this one came up. This record, of course, for me was like, you know, I remember, you know, being, uh, let's see, what year did this come out? 87. So I would have been 11 yeah. when this came out. Mm-hmm. Um so like 11, 12, you know, 13, when I was like sort of really into this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, <clears throat> I loved this record back then and I I love it now. It's, it's definitely one of those records that as much as my musical taste has expanded, you know, since then, there are certain things like acdc and kid and van halen and guns and roses that like my taste has not changed at all you know yeah and um yeah this is uh you know it's funny it's kind of turned me this actually became like a mild obsession of mine when when the record came out and um it kind of turned me around because i was definitely like i said i was listening to like who's could do and the replacements and stuff like that you know that was kind of like you know the the sort of focus of my musical um you know sort of attention and it's funny how this record came out and kind of got me back into like heavy metal again or heavy rock or hard rock or the, all those kinds of things you know but we can get into that once we start talking about the episode t- start talking about the record so i guess yeah, um, yeah. you know just to start off you know guns and roses formed in los angeles in 1985 uh, sort of from the, um, you know, the uh, the wake of L.A. Guns. You know, my my understanding is that Izzy Stradlin and Tracy Guns were roommates at one point, and um, L.A. Guns needed a singer. Izzy recommended Axl Rose. A few months later, GNR was formed, and then they made the EP. You know, live like a fucking suicide. You know, that got yeah. 
that sort of got incorporated onto subsequent editions of this record and also came out, you know, after they were, you know, huge, they got re-released. So, but the record yeah. that we're talking about tonight, Appetite for Destruction, that's the debut full-length record, full-length LP by Guns N' Roses, released July 21st, 1987 on Geffen Records. Pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, and you know what I, you know, in kind of like, you know, reading up on this and kind of going back over it, the, the, you mentioned the release date, July 21st, 87. The fascinating thing is that it didn't hit number one until over a year later, uh, August 6th of 88. Um, so it took, you know, quite some time. And from what I understand, what I can gather the the majority of the like early reviews that, that actually came out when the album came out were not favorable. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. The uh, yeah yeah it, it, there was some some people actually were bummed out on uh, you know because of the misogyny and some of the lyrics I guess. And uh, yeah, the record was just a little too dark I think for like you know the, the sort of mainstream type of people you know like as far as critics and journalists went. Yeah, there's a yeah yeah. Actually, yeah, uh, I mean, I have. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that um, there's a couple. I have a little, little bullet points here. Um, Robert Christ, Christgau, Christgau's record guide, the 80s, gave uh, Axel Rose yeah. props for his vocal prowess, but was unsettled by the darkness of the lyrics. Like he, he was, uh, you know, some of some of the overt um male dominance that was being expressed in axel's lyrics actually unsettled this man <laughs> yeah you know it's funny because i get that i understand like why <clears throat> this record kind of uh i i i guess what people made made people take a step back because it was like for that kind of stuff, I mean, you think about the bands that were that era and kind of roughly that style, mm -hmm. like the sort of like the Motley Crues, the Rats, the your Poisons, you know, all that stuff. Um, the, there was nothing quite as like street as this Guns N' Roses record. It was like pretty street, but but as far as the misogyny goes, I don't get how there's anything on this record that's more or like more misogynistic than anything on a Motley Crue record at that time. So that that part kind of was like. I don't know where people are drawing the line, but it's, it seems like a it seems pretty arbitrary. Um, yeah, yeah, I, but I definitely. Yeah, I agree with that. Just because uh, you know, like, I think the lyrical content was uh, was pretty much in in line with a lot of the bands, like you know Motley Crue and whatnot. But I just think that maybe the intensity of the music and uh, the image, and they just seemed more real. I think than than Motley Crue. I think that's kind of like what what these guys are reacting to. You know. Yeah, totally, totally. But before we get um, into that, I yeah, just wanna, I came across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we get into that, no, I, just, I just want to run down sort of the, you know, all the credits and all this kind of stuff, and you know, just sure. uh, in case anyone out there is wondering about these things, the record is fifty-three minutes and fifty-one seconds, recorded January eighteenth through March twenty-third, nineteen eighty-seven, at Rumba Studios, Canoga Park, California, the record plant, L.A. Can-Am Studios and Tarzana. Now, they recorded it, they finished, they wrapped up recording in March, and then the record came out like just a couple months later, which I thought was pretty impressive. 
And um, yeah, that's how they did it in those days. There wasn't there wasn't like there was no lack of pressing plants and that, you know back yeah. in those days. <laughs> yeah, they just like got it out. You know, it's like I remember uh, a couple of other episodes ago we were going over uh, Mob Rules by Sabbath, and it was the same thing. It's like they wrapped up recording. And immediately this thing went into press and it was out like immediately almost the same thing with Iron Maiden Killers. Like they've recorded that. And then just like a few months later, that record was out and being bought by the public. You know, it's pretty intense. Yeah. I mean, um, the good old days. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the uh, this this features what I think most people consider a classic lineup of Axl Rose on vocals, Slash on guitars, Izzy, Izzy Stradlin guitar, Duff Rose McKagan on bass, and Steven Adler on drums. And uh, you know this this yeah. this lineup existed pretty much only for, for that record, and then you know became this yep. music, musical chairs of different people, including you know Matt Sorum and all these other guys. Um, yeah. Yeah. Production credits, we have Mike Klink, who is the producer and engineer. Now, Klink, coincidentally, was orig be originally began production of Metallica's Injustice for All, but was replaced by Fleming Rasmussen, who did some of their other records. So Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. That was, I guess they had talked to, uh, I guess they had talked before they settled on Mike Klink, I guess... They'd considered Mutt Lang, but Geffen didn't want to spend the cash on Mutt Lang. And then uh, Paul Stanley from Kiss, yeah. I guess, was an option. Oh, wow. But he wanted to like change the songs around and change Stephen Adler's drum setup. And so they, they, they kind of they shit can that. Oh, wow. Okay. That would have been interesting if Paul Stanley yeah. was like the producer. Like he would have taken more of um, a hands on role, I guess, in crafting the songs. You know, he would have yeah, been like, like, it sounds like that's what he wanted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I found out something cool about Rumbo Recordings, too, in Canoga Park, which you mentioned. Um, so it apparently it was owned by Daryl Dragon. Yeah. Who, uh, otherwise known as Captain from Captain and Tennille. No way. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And he and, and uh, I, he also he passed away in January very recently. Oh, so, wow. Damn. There you go. They had a TV yeah. show, didn't they? The Captain yeah. and Tennille. I, I believe so. They they were very much like a. They were kind of like the, um, like the minor league Sonny and Cher. That hat of the captains, that's definitely <laughs> a uh, an interesting look for somebody to sort of craft. I think you know. <laughs> he was a trailblazer. Yeah, trailblazer of the captain hat. You know. <laughs> so just uh, real quick, just run through the the track listing because there's actually there is something yeah. interesting about that. It's, you know, you'd have typically you'd have side A and side B, right? But sure. you would back then they they decided to do something novel by going with side G and side R on yeah. the record. Yeah. So side G, that included Welcome to the Jungle, It's So Easy, Night Train, Out to Get Me, Mr. Brownstone, and Paradise City. Side R featured My Michelle, Think About You. Sweet Child of Mine, You're Crazy, Anything Goes, and Rocket Queen. And there was a little bit of a concept behind having um, you know, the, the G and the R. I guess side G, those are all songs about drug abuse and like, you know, hard times in the big city. And side two was about love, sex, and relationships. Or side R, rather. Correct myself. 
So there was you know, yeah. quite a bit yeah. of uh, thought went into that. I Although guess. I think, although I, I, I read that, and I, but then I found out another interesting detail. Um, it's rumored that Think About You could have just as easily been on the other side of the record because people think it's like about relationships, but the rumor is that Think About You is actually another heroin song, like Mr. Brown's song. Really? Like Mr. Brownstone. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's according according to the NME. Yeah. Really? Wow. Yep. Hmm. Yep. Okay. Yeah, it's uh those guys those guys like the party from what I heard. <laughs> I heard that too. I heard that too. But it, it, it's interesting because not not to change records, but it's interesting because that's not the first time that's happened, or it was the first time, but it happened again with lies on the song uh Used to Love Her. Um they got all kinds of uh, you know, flack for the being that being a misogynistic song, but they came out and said, Well, the song is actually about uh, Axel's dog and they had the dog died and they buried it in the backyard. Oh really? Um, so, Damn. you know, who knows if that's true? Who knows if that's true? But you know what I mean? There's these double meanings floating around all the time. Yeah, that's um I kinda yeah, that's interesting. Also there's you know, somehow I doubt that, man. You know what I mean? Let's let's be real here. You know, it's like that just sounds like deflection and maybe a little bit of smoke screen and you know, I I don't, I don't want to believe that. You know. It's but, a good it's it's a good story though. You it know is what I mean? A, it is a good story. It sounds like a little bit of a backpedal if you ask me. You know. <laughs> now there was a quite a bit of controversy around the original artwork for the record. And um, Yes. Yeah. You know, the the uh, do you do you have like uh, which version of the do you have the LP? I'm assuming you do. I have I have both versions of the LP. I was lucky enough to score uh, and and one of the original they only printed like thirty thousand or something like that of the original Robert Williams artwork. I bought one in the late '90s, like when no one cared about vinyl. Oh wow! Um, and uh, so I have both versions. And as a side note, and I, I tried to dig this up to be prepared for this, but I couldn't find it. I actually inter interviewed Robert Williams about this piece and how Guns N' Roses licensed it from him and everything. Um, I did an interview him about it years and years ago, like maybe 10 or 12 years ago, but I couldn't find the piece. So, oh, wow. um, and it's not online. Or, so I, I, was, I was hoping to dig that up so we could go a little more, you go a little deeper on that one, but I no luck. So as you mentioned, Robert Williams <clears throat> did this original piece of artwork, which is uh, the aftermath of like a robot raping this young woman. You know, panties yeah. around the ankles, like the whole nine yards. And um, what appears to be a metallic warrior is rushing to the scene of the crime, albeit late, too late to really make a difference, to possibly mete out some sort yeah. of street justice on the robot rapist. Now, that was originally supposed As to be. As one the does. Album. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So that was originally yeah. supposed to be the album, the art, the, the album cover. But. You know, this is uh, you know the the, the '80s, and um, the label rejected it. You know, obviously, back when there was a thing as distribution for records, um, there were, I guess some distributors yeah. took offense to that, and um, there was yeah. some pressure to uh, to amend the album cover. Yeah, that was frowned upon. Yeah, yeah, and then every the record cover that most people know with the cross and the Celtic knotwork and the heads and skulls representing each band member that was the uh, was changed to that, and that's that's the version that I have. It has that album cover, you know, with the skulls, and then the insert has the um, the Robert Williams piece. And um, yeah, and I, 
I think that one, the cross, I, I, I think was done by this guy named Billy White Jr., who was a, I think he was Axel's tattoo artist, or he had, or he, you know, he had done some tattoos on, on Axel. Yeah. And um, apparently the knot work in the cross uh, is like a, a, meant to be like a tribute to Thin Lizzy, which was a, a favorite band of both Axel and Billy, the, Billy White, the tattoo artist. So I, I never, I never knew. That. I thought that was cool. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely cool. And apparently during a, a 2011 interview, Axel, uh, you know, said that his original idea for the album cover was the space shuttle Challenger exploding. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. It's nothing to laugh at, but it's just hilarious that that was actually the concept, you know, um, yeah. especially because that would have been a really recent raw event at that time, you know? Oh, yeah, totally. That would That would have been in very poor taste, I think, you know. Yeah, I mean that would be the equivalent of someone like in in October of twenty of two thousand and one putting out you know something with the, the the twin towers coming down you know yeah definitely so onward to our impressions of this record and why we think it's important you know what I mean and uh, yeah you know and like I said to you at the time uh, I I'm a few years older than you so I was starting college when this record came out in nineteen eighty seven and I was living in Boston. Yep. And I like I like I said I wasn't I wasn't really into hard rock so, so much in that period of time. I was exploring you know other forms of music and self expression. You know I had gone through my little punk rock hardcore phase when I was a kid. You know always listened to metal, yeah. but I had other interests. So I remember I went down to Tower Records on Newberry Street, which uh, sadly is gone. And uh, yeah. I was. I went there specifically to buy replacements. Let it be on vinyl, and I remember these two people were talking about the Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction record, and coincidentally, I'd read about it, like I, I, it may be in the Phoenix or you know Rolling Stone or some you know spin like some major magazine. I remember seeing a, a blurb about this record and reading it, and they referenced that the band was you know kind of this mix. You know, sort of street level hard rock, like blues rock, blues influenced hard rock with like a punk sort of sensibility. And that stuck in my mind as something I might want to check out at some point. You know what I mean? And because, uh, you know, even though I was checking out new things, I was definitely still uh, very much aware and, you know, a fan of heavy metal music. And, um, you know, what happens that first year in college, you know, you want to, do different things you want to kind of recreate yourself a little bit you know for like <laughs> for a few months i was trying to become like oh yeah i'm into like you know the replacements and rem and all this kind of stuff but this record actually kind of brought me back into the fold to listen to the hard rock believe it or not so that's why it was really important to me but um but yeah so i heard these two kids talking about it and uh replacements you know i'm like oh guns and roses and they had like an end cap and that was the record i picked yeah. it up bought both records listened to both of them, you know, one after the other that night. And I was like, yeah, man, this Guns N' Roses stuff is is definitely different than what I thought it was going to sound like. Because I kind of thought it was going to be just like a run-of-the-mill L.A. kind of like glam, uh, you know, hair metal kind of thing. Because like by 87, that scene was a little bit on the way out, sort of, you know what I'm trying to say? yeah. And uh, but then this yeah. was like a whole new. This was like the, the kind of like, real deal 
of I think what a lot of those bands are trying to portray in their music. You know what I mean? So it kind of turned me around to that whole thing. Yeah, man, I can I can see that. I mean, you know, I was I was younger and sort of just starting to, like I said, like twelve, you know, eleven or twelve or something, and just started starting to really get into music. You know, like yeah. beyond. I was at the stage where like music was like this thing that like, oh, I like that song or I like that song. It was more like, oh, like I I was kind of like getting into it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That yeah. part. And so this this right at that time, um, which is why you know. I, I, I kind of like this was a record that at one point I could probably sing like almost the entire record. You know what I mean? Like I knew all. I mean, not really sing it well, but I mean, you know, I knew all the words. I knew guess the words. Saying, you yeah. know, I would to it. You know, um, and it's almost like one of those things that, like, once you've heard it so many times, this unfortunate thing happens years later where it just kind of like it fades into the background. You don't you don't get the same uh, feeling out of it anymore. Uh, until you go years and years without actually hearing it, um, uh, or you know, all the way through, which um, which I guess I haven't. I, I guess I actually haven't listened to it like front to back um, in probably a few years until right before you asked, you know, asked me to do this podcast. Um, I've listened to a song there, you know, a, so- a song here, a song there, of course, you know, um, but uh, um, the whole thing front to back, and it's it's like. It's an incredible piece of work, man. It's like, it's, it's, I read an article where the guy pointed out, this guy who wrote it, Dan Epstein, mm-hmm. uh, he, wrote, he pointed out a cool, a few cool things about the record. Um, but one was that uh, he made, it made, uh, it raised the bar for like track by track quality on hard rock albums. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, before prior to this it's like you'd have the singles which were like the strong songs and there was like a bunch of filler but for me this is one of those records and i'm interested to hear your take the singles aren't even like I, they're not my favorites that i mean I, they're good they're great those are the albums that, those are the songs that like obviously like suck you in but um over time those are not those do, those do not and none of them like welcome welcome the jungle and paradise city and the sweet child are probably my least three you know what i mean they're probably at the bottom of the list as far as favorite songs on this record you know yeah and those are the ones they had videos for i remember and um yeah yeah they had like the welcome to the jungle video that was like the first one i that's that's you know i saw that and i was like oh this is what the band looks like you know cool yeah but the record though yeah as an album definitely not the strongest songs on the record especially sweet sweet child of mine is probably my least favorite song on the record the entire album i think yeah. Well, I think as far from what I can gather, is it's the band's least favorite song on the oh, record really? too. You know? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like I think they, they, they think it's they think of it. They almost didn't include it. I guess they thought it was kind of like a joke. And I, some there was some quote. I think it was Slash or Axel referred to it as circus music. Like they, I don't think they like that song. Yeah. I mean, well, this would be probably be a good time to run down like maybe what like our favorite tracks are on this record. Then. Yeah, man. Let's hear it. Well, for me, the song "It's So Easy" is probably my favorite yes. song on the record. You know, straight up. Yeah, man. And uh, uh, yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, I, it's number two for me. Rocket Queen is my favorite, uh, but "It's So Easy" is like a it's it's close. And I wanted to mention when they did this, um, you know, they they reissued the album recently, um, and uh, with all this extra stuff, yeah, including. They re- including they released a video um, 
and uh, it was like a live concert video. I mean, they play like the album version of the song, but it's a live concert video of, of Guns N' Roses playing at the Cat House oh, wow. in 89. In 89, they made a video for It's So Easy, and it's so cool, man. It's I highly recommend it. It's like a lot, like a recorded, like a live recording type of video. Yeah, well, so yeah, so it's like it's the like the so they basically they they play the album version of the like what you hear in the video is like the album version oh, of right. it's so easy, but you see them what you you see them playing the song live at the Cat House. Okay, um, uh, and it's uh, it's fucking great, man. It's really cool. Yeah, so so it's like a performance video. Then all right, I got it. Yeah, yeah, and that's on like yeah. one of those deluxe versions of the record that came out. Yeah, but the, the you can actually check out the video. The video's on, I think I watched it on Apple Music. It might be on okay. YouTube or something like that. But yeah, you, you can just check it out online, yeah. So you have Apple Music? Because I, I like Apple Music too. I use that all the time. Yeah, 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 I have that. Yeah, totally. And that's how I got the whole, that's how I got the, um, the uh, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead by talking about that reissue thing because there's a bunch of cool stuff on that. But um, yeah, I got that on Apple Music with all the sort of, you know, original sessions and all the stuff that was kind of scrapped before they, you know, recorded the album for real. Yeah, that's, um, you know, doing the research for this. I mean, you know, for years, the only thing I, I didn't, I kind of, after this record came out, you know, the EP that came out after this, you know, Lies, which is, you know, yeah. had, uh, dug that, you know, dug the acoustic stuff. And then when Use Your Illusion came out in the early 90s, that pretty much closed the door on the band for me. And I, and I kind of just was like, all right, cool. Guns N' Roses, you know, Appetite for Destruction, great. Those dead EPs, cool, but it's over for me, at least. You know? Oh, so you, you didn't like Use Your Illusion at all. I hated it, man. There's maybe three or four songs on it that I dug, but I think that they had the audacity of putting out two records that were pretty mediocre, you know, that they might have been able to, like, put together one fairly solid record and thrown away half of the songs on each of those records. Yeah. It really turned me off yeah. to the whole thing, you know? Well, it's interesting because I, what I, what I also didn't know that I found out is that I guess, and and, and part of this is it, it goes to the, the, the talk, the reissue with the extra stuff, but apparently back off bitch, November rain, don't cry. And you could be mine. We're all written prior to appetite and could have potentially been on appetite but they held them for what ended up being user illusion which i thought was interesting because i can certainly hear i don't know about don't cry november rain but i can certainly hear you could be mine or back off bitch being on appetite and, and fitting in yeah you, know? you could be mine is solid good song yeah that, that was in the terminator 2 soundtrack too right yeah exactly right. yeah good song back off bitch sounds like a high school band wrote it in my opinion <laughs> and um the two you know the the two uh ballads you know they're cool i'm not a big ballad type of person but you know they're they're pretty good yeah you know, and and yeah you know i think they're accomplished as like pieces of music but you know they're not something i would necessarily you know i might skip over that if i'm listening to the records you know what i mean yeah but yeah. uh but you know but yeah if that that's but the rest of this stuff though on that record on those two records, that group, that that duo of, of records, there's so much filler on it. You know what I mean? And and I felt, yeah. you know, I bought them when they came out. I definitely bought them, and I was like, okay, cool. You know, this has got that song on it that I liked from the Terminator. You know, it's two movie, and um, 
after a while, I was, you know, so excited about it. And then I was just like, oh, this is like, I don't know if I'm ever going to listen to this record again from, from, from front, to, front to end. You know, I, don't, I didn't think that it moved me really, <laughs> you know. And, um, and that kind of like closed the door on the band for me, you know. And um, yeah, so I, I didn't really get in. I didn't really get on board with any of the reissues until literally just a few days ago when we, you know, were preparing for this episode. And then I discovered that they have all these different repackagings of of Appetite for Destruction with all this extra stuff on it. So, you know, yeah. now I'm I'm trying to I'm now I'm getting back into the you know exploring that stuff again because there's like demos and unreleased tracks and things like that. You know, which, which is the good one to yeah. get? Like, which one is, like, the, the good one to start with, really? You mean as far as the, the reissue? Yeah, like, because there's a couple I think I just them. got the one that has, like, yeah, I just got the one, like, if you go on Alpha Music, I just got the one that has, like, all everything. Yeah. Like, it's got, it's got, the, right, it's got the album, it's got some live stuff, like, I think it's got the live, like, a suicide stuff, it's got, got some of the lie stuff, because some of that stuff was recorded during the Appetite Sessions. Yeah. Um. And then there's like the Sound City sessions in 86, which I think were, those were, I can't remember if those were, so they did two sessions prior to the Appetite session. They did one with uh, Spencer, uh, what's the guy's name? Spencer Proffer, who did Quiet Riot's Metal Health. Okay. Um, and uh, which was like the huge hit in 83 or whenever that came out. Um, and, uh, uh, so they did they didn't but they didn't get along with him and then they did some more demos um with Manny uh Charlton from Nazareth. Oh yeah, I'm um, reading about that too. And yeah. that did Yeah, and that didn't pan out either. Um but so re- the result of so anyway, you if you go on Apple Music, you can get one that has literally, I mean, there's I don't know, I I can't even uh, it, there looks to be like maybe f- four dozen tracks total. You know, like maybe mm-hmm. maybe over fifty songs, actually. You know, um, and different, like you know, different covers, live stuff, and oh, then cool. demos, and then different versions from the earlier sessions. Um, and I think it's just what's it called? It's oh, it's the Appetite for Destruction Super Deluxe. Oh, uh, yeah, aptly titled Super Deluxe. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's great, and so you can kind of hear the you know. W- w- the different kind of versions of the songs and the early and and fascinating like the early versions of back off bitch um and november rain and what is is uh is you could be mine on here i'm looking back off bitch is there november rain uh i don't see i don't see the other songs but there's a lot of stuff here um their cover, their Mama Kin, you know, their cover of Aerosmith, yeah. uh, Mama Kin, Roast You cover, Nice Boys Killer. Yep. Um, uh, they did Jump Jack Flash by the Stones. Oh, they did know. Elvis, Heartbreak Hotel. Okay. Yeah, some cool and stuff then, on did that. Did you hear that there was Yeah, and then did you hear the song? That, 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 I think it was from the Spencer Proffer sessions. They did a song called Shadow of Your Love, which they actually released as a seven inch, like last year, I think. No, no. I don't know. I don't know if you heard that, but it's like a super, it's like one of the most punk. Guns N' Roses songs um, in existence. Like, it's got that, it's got that appetite energy, you know? Oh, cool. Yeah. That sounds like it's much to check out then. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, that's good, man. Because I, I, like I said, I kind of, I, I started researching this thing and, 
ign- I guess, you know, ignorantly, I'm like, oh, yeah, they have a r- record out. It's got, you know, 12, tr- 12 tracks on it. And, <laughs> and then, like, I saw this, like, whole, I mean, and I also know that a lot of times there's a whole cottage industry of repackaging old material and reissuing stuff. But when I looked at the track listings for these, you know, reissues, I'm like, man, there's like a ton of stuff on this and I should check it out. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's funny. I also remember vividly back in 1987, cause you know, I went to Boston university and I lived yeah. like out on Commonwealth Avenue. And one day walking by the paradise club, the paradise rock club, you know, Commonwealth Avenue, sort of by the BU campus there. And yeah, there was a show that featured Guns N' Roses playing there and at a, at a venue that, I mean, anyone who's never been to Boston or isn't familiar with the Paradise Rock Club, it's like, what, like maybe like 150 people, maybe 200 people can fit in that place. You know, it's like a tiny... Yeah, oh, the, par- the Paradise? Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. I feel... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I can, I, it seems bigger than that to me, but maybe I just, my memory is bad. I don't know. It's definitely not as big as you remember it being. Cause when I was like, you know, when I was like 18 or 19 years old, you know, part of me was like, oh man, this is like a big rock club type of scenario. Cause it, it just seemed like it would be a lot bigger inside. Yeah. But then as years went by, you know, and I've, I saw actually big venues, I'm like, yeah, this place is like probably tops 200 people with like, the balcony or whatever happening and uh but yeah, yeah so guns yeah. and roses play there on probably it might have been their first u.s tour as a headliner you know like their first outing through across the country and i was too young to actually i didn't have any kind of way of getting into the show so i didn't go i, I was too young to actually go see them play at the paradise you know oh man yeah but i i there's like this thing online that's like called like set lists or something like that like um you know, it, it, it has, you can look stuff up on there, like shows and bands and whatnot. And I found the set list for the uh, yeah. the Boston Mass Paradise Rock Club show, and it was on October 27th, 1987. So it was during that year when Guns N' Roses was still more or less like an underground band that no one, could, no one knew about, really. You know, it was before 88 yeah. when the big heat started for them. And um, so the wow. set, I found the set list for it. And the set list, they open with, uh, it's so easy. Did you move to the city? Out to get me. Mr. Brownstone. My Michelle. Sweet child of mine. Rocket queen. Welcome to the jungle. Knocking on heaven's door. And they close with Paradise City. You know. Pretty uh, killer wow. set, if you ask me. You know. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. And, and Par- um, Paradise City is you know, definitely actually, the closer. That's like a quintessential closing track, in my opinion. Oh yeah, absolutely, man, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wow, that's great. That's so cool. I, you know, I actually, I actually did see Guns N' Roses. Um, not on that tour because I was, you know, even younger than you. But yeah. I saw them on. Do you remember they did that big tour? It was after Use Your Illusion came out. They did a big tour with Metallica. Yes, I do remember that. Um, yeah, so I saw them at Sullivan Stadium with Face No More was the opener. Oh, wow. Um, Face No More, Metallica, Guns N' Roses. And I don't know if you remember this little bit of trivia, but so there was a famous incident in Montreal where, the, where James Hetfield from Metallica steps into the pyro and burned his arm. Yes, I do remember and, that. Um, they, 
yeah, they had to cancel a few shows. And then when they did, when the tour did restart again, he couldn't play guitar. They had um, their roadie, who was John Marshall from, I guess, who has in Metal Church, oh, okay. uh, was yeah. playing playing guitar and 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 um and hetfield would just be standing there with a beer like belting out the lyrics you know and uh um so boston show or the you know foxborough i guess it would have been sullivan stadium was the first show after that montreal show oh wow so metallica did their whole set with just hetfield uh just singing and then they came out the encore and a sandman and he had guitar and everyone went nuts and then this was also during time. The famous thing that was going on at this time was that Guns N' Roses were like making people wait forever and ever before they came on. Right. And um, sure enough, you know, Metallica finished, and it was a long time before Guns N' Roses came on. And pe- people, I mean, it got it got dicey. Like people started throwing shit. It didn't turn into a riot, but it, it got close. You know. Damn. So that was the Guns N' Roses yeah. headlined on that tour. Interesting. Or did they flip flop? Like who went on last? I don't know. At the show that I saw, it was definitely, it was Faith No More, then it was Metallica. It was great because Metallica kind of played as the sun was going down. It was the summer, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was great. Like, they started in the light, and then by the time, you know, they were finishing, the sun the sun was down. It was just, it was killer. Um, uh, and then, you know, you, then you have to hang out for like an hour and a half, two hours before Guns N' Guns Roses showed their faces, you know? Yeah, that stinks, man. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, the only time I'd ever seen, actually, the only time I saw Guns N' Roses was summer of, was it 87 or eight? It might have been summer of 88, where they were opening for Aerosmith. And um, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It was um, the original lineup with Duff and Izzy, you know, like that version of the band. And uh, they played, I yeah. want to say it was like up in Monticello, like in New York, like out out in like Dutchess County somewhere at this like outdoor like raceway type place. And um, yeah, I'd also seen Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers play there too, like maybe the same summer possibly. And uh, yeah, I went to the show and I was, I mean, I loved, you know, and that, here you go. It's like I was telling you how Guns N' Roses rekindled my interest in hard rock. Like I always, as a kid, Aerosmith was like one of my favorite bands along with like Zeppelin and Sabbath and ACDC and listening to Guns N' Roses made me get back into Aerosmith right and I was like oh man this is yeah. like a you know Guns N' Roses is like Aerosmith and like like a modern Aerosmith or like a, a tougher like Rolling Stones kind of thing they weren't like Motley Crue who I really was not into like that kind of stuff at that time so um, seeing the yeah. two bands together touring was like amazing. I was like, this is like a no-brainer. I got to go to this show. So I went. And it was it was pretty sick. I mean, I got to say, it was great seeing them play. However, I feel like they got the old support band treatment with the sound. You know, I didn't understand mm. what that was at the time until I actually experienced yeah. that firsthand, uh, playing bigger shows with, you know, in a band myself <laughs> that sometimes like, yeah, yeah. You know, the support band kind of gets shafted on the sound. You know what I mean? Um, you know, yeah. In retrospect, I was like, yeah, they probably got the old support band shafting on the sound. Cause they kind of didn't sound that great, but seeing them play was just cool. You know, it was like, you know, my opinion, Izzy Stradlin is like one of the coolest looking guitar players, you know, next to maybe Johnny Thunders or something like that, you know? Uh, totally, man. I, you know, 
the Aerosmith connection is interesting because obviously, like you know, Guns N' Roses were super influenced by Aerosmith. Um, but the other thing that guy Dan Epstein was writing about is he pointed out that Guns N' Roses were kind of responsible for bringing back the kind of Rolling Stones influence in in rock bands. Yeah, and you know the kind of example the example he used was like how Cinderella kind of went super stonesy after Appetite came out, uh-huh. and he even went as far as he even went as far as to say that like Black Crows probably wouldn't even the Black Crows wouldn't even got a record deal if it weren't for Guns N' Roses, um, which I thought was like an interesting perspective, you know. Yeah, you know something, man. Interesting side story about the Black Crows is one of the, you know somewhere after Guns N' Roses came out, obviously like maybe eighty eight, eighty nine. Um, at this point, I had secured a fake identification, so I was able to get. In, <laughs> I was able to get into uh, venues in Boston, and I was in college. The Black Crows record came out. They played at the Channel in Boston downtown. It's a yeah. Yeah, you know, for anyone out there who's not old like me, it's like the channel is kind of <laughs> like a legendary like Boston venue that every I mean Black Flag played there, like Motorhead. It's like kind of one of those things. Like someone should write a book about it or do a documentary about the channel. It's like way downtown in Boston, like almost impossible to get to unless you had a car. Or if you yeah. wanted to take a subway there and you walked and you, you kind of had to know where it was, you know what I mean? But it had great shows there. So Black Crows opening for Junkyard. That was the show I went wow. to. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And the reason why I went is because I was into Guns N' Roses, you know? I, Junkyard featured Brian Baker from, um, you know, from Dag Nasty, Minor Threat. Um, yep. it got, had dudes from the, the big boys in it who, were, who was a, you know, a, a punk band that I was into at the, you know, at the time. And, uh, they were doing this like guns and roses, like blues, sleaze rock kind of metal band. And, um, yeah, they, they were the headliner with special guest black Rose. <laughs> and I remember like, wow, these guys are really good, man. They're cool. You know, then, you know, years later, they're like this institution like they're massive you know i mean black crows are yeah it's like a classic rock band now for the most part you know yeah oh totally but i have to agree with you that it opened the door to that you know that sort of stones influence and you know and for sure those that band it had guns and roses not hit that band might have still just sort of languished in obscurity they just would have been a bar rock band you know in georgia yeah yeah man yeah yeah But also, I'm going to go even further to say that Guns N' Roses also changed the trajectory of a lot of those kind of like post-rock British bands, too. I mean, most notably the cult, you know? Oh, yeah, man. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no question about that. Yeah. And in in addition to the cult, there was like bands like The Mission and uh, this other band called Balaam and the Angel, which... They started out as this kind of death rock, like goth, gothic, uh, you know, goth rock kind of bands. But, you know, in 88, 89, they became these like sleazy blues influenced, you know, rock and roll bands. You know, it's just, it's such a, I don't know. It's like, I, I don't know if you can attribute all this to Guns N' Roses, or, but I think you can because of their huge success. And of course, you know, when a band's yeah. successful, people want to emulate it. You know, so it was like this phenomenon. Yeah. Oh, and dude, and even you can even see what they did, like because really the only the only like 
sort of competition they had at the time when they came out was would be with Motley Crue as far yeah. as someone who was like doing that kind of like it was it was yeah it was still it was it was that sort of like glammy hair metal but it was still like heavier you know Motley Crue those first two records were heavy you know sure um and then but so like 87 right the crew come out with girls 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 which wasn't that heavy and really wasn't that good uh uh Guns N' Roses come out with Appetite, and then Motley Crue come back with like a super heavy record, or a lot of it. Like Doctor Feelgood in '89 was like they, you can tell that it was like, a, it was a challenge. Like they, something happened. Like at, like Guns N' Roses made Motley Crue like sort of check their game. You know what I mean? Which um, which Crue record had Kickstart My Heart on it? Was that Doctor Feelgood or Girls, Girls, Girls? Uh, you know, that's that's a good question. Uh, I th- I want to say it was Doctor Feelgood, but let's uh, let's look it up on the uh, interhole right now. The interhole. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good a good name for it as any, I suppose. Yeah. Yes, man. Uh, yep, Doctor Feelgood. Yep. Okay, I'm, I was going to acknowledge that um, they also changed their image a little bit too. Motley Crue, as I think, as a result of Guns N' Roses, like they became all of the, like black leather and bikers, and they all got tattoos and everything. And because I get, yeah. you know, I, yeah. you know, when I first started being aware of Motley Crue, you know, they dressed sort of like, uh, you know, very glam, you know, the spandex and all that sort of stuff, and they just, you know, lipstick, that whole thing, like poison, you know. Yeah. But then they kind of toughened up their image because, you know, Guns N' Roses had a a little bit, but it was more like a Hanoi Rocks thing. You know what I'm trying to say? It was like, you can tell there yeah. was like a little glam going on, but it was definitely more of like a street kind of vibe, you know? Well, that's an interesting thing too, man, an interesting connection there because, you know, Axl Rose like kind of openly acknowledged that Guns N' Roses would not exist without Hanoi Rocks. Um, and, you know, speaking of the challenge of Molly Crew, I mean, not that this was planned or anything, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Vince basically killed Brazzle from Hanoi Rocks. I mean, that's that's kind of like it's a bizarre, uh, you know, that's a bizarre connection, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Actually, did you see, uh, you know, the Netflix, the Dirt? And you check that out? I yeah, think, I yeah, saw we, it. yeah, we did. I saw we did. It. We texted about this. I remember actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah. Terrible, you know. I think, in my opinion, but uh, <laughs> but the, I have to say. It, it was not great, but it was. It was actually. I was expecting it to be. It was way better than I thought it was going to be. Like I had my expectations were really like in in like you know the toilet. So um, I, I didn't. I, I was actually. I was like kind of pleasantly surprised that I didn't think it was terrible. I think for me, uh, you know, I, you know, you. I'm sure you. You've read the book, and I. You know, we both read the book, and. Um, yeah. Yeah. When. When uh, after reading that book, man, I'm just like, man, this is like such a depressing, like dark, you know, documentation of complete lack of self control. <laughs> you know, just like a whole, you know, just the rock and roll. It's like the epitome of the rock and roll, like like nightmare. You know what I mean? And um, then when I found out they were making a film, I'm like, man, what what, what part are they going to adapt? You know, of this of this book? You know, and. <laughs> And uh, yeah. I think that, but I got excited about it. I was like, oh, this is going to be great, man. You know, I like, I, I literally thought it was going to be good. And I remember I had practiced that night and it was the kind of thing where I'm like, all right, cool. I'm going to go to practice. 
you know, I'm going to stop off at Wawa. I'm going to drive back from New Jersey. And I'm going to watch this later at night. And it was like 1.30 in the morning before I got to watching it. And I was like, <laughs> man, I think because of the buildup, I was utterly disappointed in the movie. You know, but, <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, there was definitely entertaining parts, but I was just kind of like, eh, you know, I think I'm just going to go to sleep now, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Trying to see, I think I had a couple other things that go over here. Yeah. yeah. Well, we... I, I have something to bring. I don't, I don't know if you came across this, but I, I did not know this at all. But apparently, Axel, in, 1999, Axel re-recorded the entire record, Appetite for Destruction, the entire thing, with the band he had at the time. Really? And, and it was never released, hmm. but except for, apparently, a clip of the re-recorded version of Sweet Child of Mine plays over the credits of that f- terrible Adam Sandler movie, Big Daddy, oh, really? that also came out in 1999. <laughs> That was like the only glimpse that the public got of that, which seems like an appropriate pairing there. But um, uh, I had no idea that that was was something that happened. Man, talk about throwing your money away. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's one of the things that blows my mind about like these big records is you know the complete and utter lack of just complete disregard for money that gets burned on making these things. I mean, I guess if you can sell, I don't know, 80 million records or however much they sold. I mean, this record went platinum. So, I mean, yeah, they sold a, a lot, you know. So it's almost it's almost double diamond. Eight, it's certified 18 times platinum. And that's and that's as of 2008. So, I wonder if they've they've gone officially double diamond by then. Yeah. By now. I imagine they probably did. You know, that's that was over 10 years, 11 years ago yeah. at this point. Um Yeah. But even yeah. when, when we were discussing these different iterations of the recordings, you know what I mean? There's, you know, the sessions they did with the dude from Nazareth. Those are probably like $100,000 just like thrown out the window and never, you know what I'm trying to say? Like that was going yeah, into the yeah, studio, like a 24-track yeah. with a, you know, like a huge, probably astronomical day rate, you know, with all the accoutrements, you know what I mean? Everything, techs. You know, deli trays, all that stuff. You know what I mean? Like hospitality, sure. like all that, you know, unlimited, whatever. Got to have deli. Yeah. yeah. They're in your session, yeah. you know. These aren't just plus like. All, it, plus all the cocaine. Oh, yeah. You know, all the, all the cocaine and booze and hookers and all this stuff, you know. And, and and I'm sure like, you know, they weren't. And they were probably in the studio for like a couple, you know, like a you know, month or two making a record. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, no, this isn't doing it. Okay. Done. Yeah. You know, then maybe maybe someday, thirty years from now, we'll we'll remix it and it'll come out on a deluxe edition of the record. <laughs> and then <laughs> they do it again, right? No good. No, we don't like it. And then like the demo, the demoing and the 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 scrap sessions and all this stuff. And then now you're talking about how Axel re-recorded that at least you know the entire album with a completely different band. And I'm like, man, like yeah. what? You know, it's just like the just burning money. It just blows my mind sometimes, you know. Yeah, it's uh, I, yeah, it's 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 mind-boggling, you know, <laughs> like truly mind-boggling. So, um, 
so yeah, I mean, that's appetite for destruction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Um, one of the things though, yeah, about Guns N' Roses career is that, uh, you know, I mean, at this stage of the game, you know, you can tune into any classic rock station, you know, like, you know, WAAF and Western Mass or something like that. And you'll hear, you'll hear, you know, Sabbath, you'll hear, you know, Credence, you know, you hear Pink Floyd, you'll hear Guns N' Roses. And it is, it has entered that pantheon of bands though. You know what I mean? And the one oh, thing, yeah, absolutely. The, the one thing that is different about them though is that you know pink floyd has you know dark side of the moon animals you know they have a, a you know a very impressive catalog of successful records and records that were meaningful to people you know sabbath like you know all those bands guns and roses really only has this one record in my opinion that is meaningful you know i mean i don't know i, I like i said before the use your illusion thing didn't do it for me didn't seem as 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 important yeah seem as like impactful as this record and um i i think like that that's the only the only bummer about them is that for whatever reason they just couldn't keep keep the energy together they couldn't keep like the personnel or you know and and despite i mean it's funny though you know oh yeah these guys were just like out of control with drugs and so was sabbath man you know what i mean they had ozzy was in the band for what six albums you know what i mean and uh yeah eight they, yeah eight albums right yeah they, they they were able to like make eight records with ozzy osbourne who probably is one of the most out of control like rock stars there is you know and i guess like for me it's yeah. like i would love to have seen guns and roses make more records like appetite for destruction you know no i i yeah i agree man and and yeah i mean yeah i mean in sabbath's a great example i mean yeah the, the, those guys were you know they had the they had the egos and the and the drugs, obviously, but um, you know, they like you said, they made eight records with Ozzy. Six of those records were, were awesome. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, and even the last two, like, yeah, they weren't that great, but they had some really good songs. I mean, they were more. That was more like you know, use your illusion, where it's like, yeah, there's a couple of gems in the wilderness there. Um, but uh, I mean, still six records, and those were in the days like you know, we, you know, we were talking earlier, like being impressed how the record gets finished, you know, in March and it's out in you know June or something. Yeah. Um, that's when, I mean, Black Sabbath was putting out two records a year sometimes. Yeah. You know what were. I mean? Yep. Like, they, they did eight records between 1970 and 78 with Ozzy. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I know. It's insane. And, 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 it's insane. Only, and that wasn't one a year. Like, there was sometimes they went two years without doing a record, but they'd do two another year, you know? Yeah. You know, it's it's crazy. And that's what I mean. And, you know, Ozzy is just like a drug maniac, like monster, you know? And yeah. and Bill Ward, yeah. you know, like these guys weren't like uh, Boy Scouts, you know what I'm trying to say? And some, yeah, yeah. Some yeah of them exactly. They managed to keep it together, you know, somewhat, you know. And um, but like, I will. There were two things though that I think were variables, though. Like first of all, I think you know Black Sabbath. I don't think were for the most part playing. Like yeah, they do that big you know California Speedway thing at that festival, but I mean Guns N' Roses were playing shows like not quite that size, but close to it, like on a regular basis. And Black Sabbath were not doing that. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't MTV, you know, when Sabbath right. was doing it. There was no MTV. And I think that extra spotlight um, made the whole thing, like, I don't know, cook that much faster. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's an interesting point that you bring up, too. You know, I think, 
that was kind of the beginning, like the precursor to the times we live in now, where maybe the attention span started decreasing because of the introduction of videos and things like that. You know, people were, were yeah. there's a visual component to seeing your, oh, here's a, the latest video of the band. You know, because like so many people were yeah. like, oh, MTV is going to ruin music, you know, and all this other stuff. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Well, I mean, the other, the other thing was, like, if you wanted to find out what Black Sabbath looked like, you had to, like, go and buy Cream Magazine <laughs> yeah. or Circus or, or, you know what I mean, like, the, or the, like, it wasn't like, or the record, you know what I mean? Whereas, like, you, everyone knew what Axel and Slash looked like. You didn't even have to buy the record. They were being beamed into your house. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? So it, it was kind of like, it's insane, you know? Yeah, definitely, you know? And, and nowadays, like, I think in a way, like music, maybe like just in the big picture, um, we're back to, you know, the way things were in the 50s with like singles and like, you know, kids are into like one song by a band. They're not necessarily into albums, I think, these days. Yeah. You know, it's weird. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But thanks for uh, chatting about Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses and, uh, and a lot of fun. My pleasure, sir. It. Yeah, man. So uh, yeah, what man, do you. Thanks uh, for having me. What do you what do you got going on, man? You know, in in general, anything you want to promote while you while you have this platform? <laughs> uh, let's see. What, what anything I want to promote? Uh, no, I, no, I guess not at the moment. I guess I'm, I mean I'm doing a radio show on NTS Radio. Um, it's once a month. It's called Electric Warriors. Cool. And um, you know, we play new stuff. We have a tagline. It's um, old stuff, new stuff, but only the good stuff. Oh, cool. What, what is NTS? So what that. is that? It's uh, so NTS is an online radio, um, online radio uh, station. Um, they were founded in London, um, and so that you know the, the the main headquarters in London. But then now they have an LA satellite okay. uh, uh, one, and so they, when they started off in London, they had like you know all different kinds of formats, different shows, and the metal show. I don't know if he still does it, but they had a metal show that was being done by Fenris from Dark Throne. Oh, wow. Um, so they wanted to do a metal show in the U.S., and they asked me. So it became, became very flattering in the light of the fact that Fenris does the European one, you know? Yeah. Um, so, um, so, yeah, so now I'm kind of doing it. But it's, like, not just metal. It's, me it's like, metal and, and hard rock. You know, I kind of go, go back to the – I go back to the 70s frequently. Um but uh, we spend a lot of time in the '80s, and uh, you know, present day, of course, they're playing playing new stuff as well. So cool. Now, how can people listen to this? Is there like an app or something like that, or is there's a site to go to? Yeah, it's just a, like you just NTS. Uh, is it NTS.com or NTS? Hold on, let me see what it is. I don't. I, I'm so. Uh, let's let's find out here. It's and. And it's it's live, uh, and uh, yeah, the show's on once a month. Um, you can look it up. The, the old shows, my was called Electric Warriors, and the old shows are all like archived. So you can you can go see the playlist, or you can go like listen to the actual show if you want. Um, the last one was just this past Thursday, so it's still still pretty fresh. So that's nts.com. Nts.live. Nts.live. Okay, cool. That's awesome that it's archived, man. Yeah. And so it's yeah. like we can go back and check out Electric Warrior and all your playlists and everything's all it's in there. Yeah, it's all there. Nice. Yeah, and there's a, there's goofy, goofy photos of me and everything. Right. On. Are you still doing that Tuesday night uh, Heavy Tuesdays thing? 
out in LA? Yep, Heavy Tuesday. Heavy Tuesday has been going strong at Footsie's in Los Angeles for a decade now. Damn! Wow. Um, every every Tuesday night, the heavy metal and hard rock. Um, yeah, we just did it last night, so I, sur- I survived another one. Now, do you do this by yourself, or is that other guy involved that used to work at Hydrahead? Um, what's his name? I can't forget his name. The, the, the vacation, <laughs> I can't remember his name. I think he owns Vacation Vinyl or something like that. Is he part of this at all? Yeah, Mark. You know, it's funny, Mark. Uh, Mark only actually did that, sh- that that did Heavy Tuesday with me once. He did the very first one, uh, and then as he he'll tell you that he was fired, but that's not actually what happened. He quit. Okay. Um, uh, and, but then I was doing it with, I was doing it for years and years with Scott Carlson from, uh, repulsion nice. and, uh, and Tom Neely, the, the, one of the creators of Henry and Glenn forever, which um, your listeners might be aware of the, the comic book, um, uh, about, you know, Henry Rollins and Glenn Danick living together in domestic bliss. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh but 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 you know both those guys have a lot going on so and now it's just me and i have various guests uh guest djs in when you know have some friends do it or when there's a band in town and they have time to do it or maybe maybe we'll get mike hill from tombs to do it one of these days you never know i'd love to man it'd be great hopefully you know it'd be nice to be out there on a tuesday you know what i mean or actually it'd be even yeah, nicer to be out there just visiting instead of doing rock and roll business you know yeah man it'd be a lot yeah. of fun yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right on, man. Any anything musically happening with you? Any band stuff or you know creative things going on? Yeah, you know I'm always I'm always kind of doing that stuff. Um, and uh, but uh, I can tell you a little bit about it when we're not on the podcast. But right, but right but for for the purposes of public information, uh, I'm I'm kind of just uh, you know I play in in mustard gas and roses with yep. with uh, our our mutual friend Mike Gallagher. Um, and I play in a band called Black Mare. Um, uh, it's kind of a gothic rock band. Um, I have another thing kind of cooking that I'll I'll tell you about later. But it's kind of not uh, you know, it's not a uh, it's not ready for public consumption just yet. Got it. Yeah, no problem, man. Just figured you know if you had something something going on. And of course, yeah, you know we can uh, read your written work in a variety of different uh, publications online and in print. So, you know, Jay Bennett. Yeah, absolutely. Scribe. Yeah. <laughs> Scribe. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. We will put that in quotes. Scribe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So, uh, yeah. Thanks a lot, man. Once again, it was a blast. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. You've been listening to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. We'll be back next week. So be sure to subscribe and never miss out. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio via web, iOS, or Android for one of the best metal communities in the world. Exclusive interviews and merch, and so much more. You're